Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Playbridge podcast. Today, we are joined by Maggie Jung. She's the head of fundraising at WeFunder, a YC company where she works with early and growth stage startups. Before WeFunder, she was the sixth employee and chief of staff at DoorVest, building it from pre-seed to post-series A, working across many functions, including products, marketing, ops, and strategy. Maggie is also an investor at Potluck VC, a venture firm focusing on AAPI found, founded growth stage companies. Maggie and I originally met on TikTok as I meet all my new friends these days. And we recently got to meet in person, I think about like two weeks ago um, for a little afternoon beach walk in Santa Monica. So, so excited to finally have you on the show and can't wait to share your story with our listeners. Yeah, excited to be here. Amazing. So let's dive right into your current role at WeFunder. Can you just start off by sharing like one, what is WeFunder? And then also why did you pursue an opportunity to work at that company? Yeah, so I think it definitely is helpful to explain what WeFunder is. Um, so essentially, the traditional way people invest in private companies, so companies who haven't IPO'd, is you can't. Um, because you have to be an accredited investor, which is um, something that is just a compliant issue where essentially to be an accredited investor, you have to have a net worth of over a million dollars, make over, I believe it's like 250K annually for the past two years um, or pass your series, I think six and 75 tests. So these are all like financial licensing tests. And all of this is essentially to prove that you are responsible enough with your money to invest in private companies because they're very risky. What this also means is that most people are not qualified to invest in private companies because most people aren't millionaires or have their financial licenses. Um, and so one, it can be very restrictive, uh, but also these normal people are missing out on a huge opportunity to build wealth, where if you had invested, you know, even $1,000 into Uber, you would have made a ton of money when they exited or IPO. Um, so what WeFunder does is essentially we are opening up access to invest into these private companies to everyone. Um, you don't have to be accredited to invest in companies on WeFunder. And the way it works is through a law called, um, it's through something called the Jobs Act, which basically allows for private companies to crowdfund their um, their money. Um, and But you have to do it through one of these registered platforms. So WeFunder was the first one in this industry to offer it. Um, so I guess you can think of it as Kickstarter, but when you invest, let's say $100, you're not just giving it away. You actually become a part owner or you are granted shares in that company so that when they do grow, your investment grows with them. Um, and so eventually if they ever exit, then you would benefit from that. And we have had some people um, become millionaires through their investments on the platform. Um, so that's what WeFunder does. Now, what I do at WeFunder is the normal way that founders fundraise is you just hit up your network, get as many intros to venture capitalists, angel investors, rich people as you can, and then you meet with them one-on-one -on -one over a series of months 
to raise your millions of dollars. Um, now on WeFunder, you run it, you partially do that, but also you need to run it almost like a marketing campaign because um, you are engaging your community, right? Like it's very rare for strangers to just put money into your campaign. So you need visibility. You need to get people who know you to invest. Um, so let's say you're a very, very popular uh, AI note-taking tool, right? Probably lots of people use you for school or for work. And so you should run an email marketing campaign towards that audience to get them to invest and get them to know that they can become shareholders in this company whose product that they use all the time. Um, another is, so I help on the fundraising side of that because um, prior to WeFunder, I ran my past company's campaign on WeFunder and it was a very challenging experience because the platform and the product is very good. WeFunder itself is a very product first company, but what that means is sometimes the user experience from a personal aspect is a little bit lacking. And so we had a lot of founders wanting to do this using our platform and then giving this feedback that I didn't know how to do it because no one was showing me how. And so I joined WeFunder to build out this team to work with founders on WeFunder, make sure that they're successful and that they are running successful campaigns and they feel taken care of. Um, and that's what I do. So cool. So when you're running the doorbest campaign, what were some of like the biggest pain points that you saw? And then how are you helping solve those now in your current role? Yeah, I think the biggest pain points was one, it's a, it's a bit of a confusing process because almost everyone, it's their first time doing any sort of campaign like this. Um, the trouble with this industry is because it's highly regulated, what you can or can't do relies heavily on how quickly the law changes. And so our CEO, Nick, actually has personally lobbied Congress to get these laws changed. Um, and when you're doing a Reg CF campaign, so a community round, um, on one hand, you're working on filing the Form C, which is an SEC filing, letting them know that you're fundraising this way. And so there's a lot of legal documents. You need to get your financials reviewed. There's a bunch of things you have to fill out. And then in parallel, you have to figure out, okay, how do I run this huge campaign engaging hundreds, potentially thousands of people? And what is the best way to activate them? And you have a little bit of guidance on the legal end, but then on the marketing end, you're kind of entirely on your own. And so it was one, pretty hard to grasp what we could or could not do legally and also what we even should do. Because um, once you build out your campaign page and then you send an email out to your customers, then what? Um, and I think for some founders, the low hanging fruit is pretty obvious, but then after that, like, let's say you raised 50K from one email, right? Well, what do you do after that? Do you keep sending emails? Should you run ads? Should you do something else? Should you hold a live event? Um, there's no one to tell them what to do. And in the Dorvest campaign, we didn't, we pretty much just sent emails because we didn't really know what else came after that. Can you share a successful campaign that you've helped run recently and kind of the strategies that you helped that startup kind of employ and have a successful campaign? Yeah. So um, unfortunately, I can't really talk about active campaigns, but 
Um, one of the larger campaigns that we did that closed in April of this year was called Rad AI. And they are essentially selling AI technology that helps brands uh, correctly identify influencers or content creators in their niche and help them kind of build very effective marketing strategies. And they had been raising for a while. They'd raised two and a half million dollars. And what you'll see with these campaigns is when you start, there's going to be a huge influx because you're hitting up everyone you know and money comes in. And then you're going to plateau in the middle and you're going to almost feel like you hit a ceiling where you're like, I've spoken to everyone I know. I've hit up every channel I know. And maybe this is it. Maybe this is as much as I can raise. And so this is where they were at. Um, and I want to preface that my team, we are not in the business of like saving campaigns that are not doing well. Um, but for Rat, I think they had one, a very motivated, hardworking founder who was ready to just go after it. And also too, I think their business was good and had a lot of it potential and it was investable. And so we went and worked with them. Um, we found them some uh, like publisher partners to get some more articles out about their technology, about what they're doing. And we also helped them set up a series of webinars. And we tried a bunch of things. I think with every campaign, with every company, what's going to resonate with people is different. And also the channels are going to be different. So with Rad, you know, the publishers worked really well and they were able to raise uh, $5 million um, uh, once we started working with them. Um, and then there was another company where uh, their initial webinars were so successful that they just turned it into a podcast series and they brought on different, you know, housing expert, uh, experts, um, sustainability experts. And it was a way for them to do really great content marketing as well as drive investors to um, their page. So I guess for founders that might be considering a crowdfunding campaign, like who do you think is like the best fit for crowdfunding in terms of like stage of startup? Like maybe like, do they need to have active social channels and reach? Mm -hmm. What do you think would be, you know, indicators of success? Yeah, for sure. And this is something I think about a lot too, because just like how every com not every company is a fit for VC funding, not every company is a fit for community rounds. Um, I think first and foremost is you should have a community. So I think B2B SaaS companies generally have a little bit of a harder time raising in this manner because your customers are all large enterprises. Um, and so it takes a little bit more elbow grease to get them in, but also the check sizes are going to be way larger. Um, and the other is um, like, what would be a good fit? I think a good fit is a company that's doing really well and a company that already engages their community through, you know, regular emails or some sort of like deeply impassioned customer base. Uh, I'm trying to find it. I'm trying to think of an example. We have a lot. So I think for this reason, we have a lot of consumer facing products on WeFunder because you know, if you, if you use a product, you're going to love it. And then you're just going to want to invest in it. So we have a lot of like 
coffee alternatives. We have a lot of like plant-based proteins. Um, but then we also have a lot of like tech and tech projects as well. We also have films, um, mom and pop taco trucks. We have coffee shops, all these things. Um, but first of all, I think you do have to have a community and you should not do a community round as like a last resort to save your business because people are not trying to invest if you're not doing well anyway. Um, and I think, so with Rec CF, you can raise anywhere from 50K to $5 million. And so most suitable companies would be if you're raising for your seed or pre-seed, or if you're carving out some allocation in your series A, B, or C as a pure community play. Um, some examples, so Dorvest, we raised our series A, it was like $13 million. And then we raised about 250K on WeFunder so that our customers could invest. Um, so relatively not a huge amount of money, but it helped a ton with buy-in. And after that, a lot of our customers were much more forthcoming with feedback and flagging issues with us because they felt this huge sense of ownership. Um, and another is like, for example, Substack, right? For companies that are large, very well recognized and um, have a huge user base, they raised, I believe they just maxed out their $5 million round in a day or wow. so. Wow. Like normally you'd have to go talk to people and then raise and like convince them that your valuation is fair and that your metrics are good and that your trajectory is promising. And with Substack, they just sent out an email. Hey, you can invest. And just like 10K, 50K checks just came rolling in. Um, to your point of Dorvest, I'd love to transition to talk a little bit about how you joined a very early stage pre-seed startup as the sixth employee, um, I believe right out of school. And just curious what your thought process was there. I mean, I feel like joining a pre-seed startup is like a pretty risky bet to take. So how did you think about, you know, vetting the founders and the business and feeling really confident about joining that company? Yeah, sure. So Dormus is such an interesting, thinking back, I think it was a very interesting choice for me because I had worked at a few other startups prior to Dorvest, just um, on a shorter term basis, like contract work. Um, and I worked in ed tech. It was, um, they'd actually given me an offer right after they had raised their series B. So it was a really good time to work there, but I think the role wasn't quite right. And I didn't feel like I was learning enough. So then I worked at another um, company that was a consumer facing social tool. So if you see all the video kind of um, like slideshow type content on LinkedIn right now, that was my old company that got acquired. Uh, so we worked, worked there for a while, enjoyed it. Um, and then I think I took a few months off to kind of think about what I wanted and really talk to a bunch of people. And what I realized is after I spoke to all these people who I thought had really sexy, amazing jobs, I realized <laughs> that everyone's dream job is actually like, it's fine. Um, I didn't, I, I, I spoke to probably like 150, maybe 200 people. And there wasn't any one person who was like, yes, a job is the light of my life. It's amazing. Like my entire life is just so fulfilled. And so I figured, okay, well, if that's a myth, then I'm still young. I'm just going to find a place where, you know, I like what they're building. I really like the people that I'm working with and I'll have a chance to learn a lot. Um, 
And Dorvis came along and, and initially Andrew and I, the CEO spoke and I wasn't super interested because I thought real estate was kind of boring. I wasn't super familiar with the space. I'm like, eh, it's like fine. Um, but then Open Door IPO'd a few months later and I had a lot of friends at Open Door because they started in Arizona. Um, and so I just sent the CEO an email. I'm like, oh, hey, I don't know if you know this, but Open Door IPO, like, that's really cool. And thinking back now, it was, it was so dumb because, of course, everyone in PropTech knows Open Door. It's like the golden poster child for successful prop tech companies, right? So, of course, he knew. But then I think he used that as an opportunity to respond and say, like, oh, yeah, that's great. Also, we're hiring for um, this uh, account executive role. Could you help me look over the job description? And I was like, okay, that's kind of weird. But then I sent him some suggestions and he goes, oh, and by the way, you should interview. Uh, so, like, I think it was a period of probably three months from initial conversation to the actual job. But at that point, I figured, okay, well, I'm not going to find my dream job. Maybe that's a myth. But I do really like the CEO and the leadership team and I think what they're building so they were building a product that was helping you know first-time homeowners own their first investment homes so you don't have to be super rich to own an investment home which I thought was cool and something that I thought was unattainable for me so I never thought about it um, and it made sense so then I said why not but I'd also never done a sales role um, and what I did was I had my friend call in and pretend to be a customer and go on the call and record all the phrases. I, I told him to record the call, but he forgot. But he did write down all the phrases that they use, their selling points, and he gave them to me. So then I practiced. Um, and having worked in um, an ops role before where I was working with clients, I had some experience being on calls and kind of learning those, like you have to be the one to take control of the call and guide it, et cetera. Um, and I got the offer and it was really wild to me because they said they'd interviewed like, like this, the co the CEO had a sales background. So they interviewed like hundreds of candidates or something. And they're like, and you're the best one. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. Um, so then I joined and I was a six employee. Um, and Honestly, looking back, I think that was the happiest time of my life. Yeah, in my adult life, even more so than now when I make like much, much more and like have more responsibility and all that. But it was like sales is really straightforward in a way because it's like, you know what your goals are, right? And if you hit them, you're good at your job. And I was good at my job. Uh, but then I started getting bored after a bit because you're like, okay, well, every day is kind of the same. And it's like, yeah, you're building out the sales processes um, and the team is growing. But then after a point, your learning curve isn't as steep. Um, so I moved into a special projects chief of staff role. Um, and that was a huge unlock for me because you're constantly working on something new. I was essentially just working with Andrew on like new business lines, building out new teams, figuring out new products, whether or not we should go into new markets or not. Um, and so I never really felt super good at my job because it was always something different and new, but I did learn a ton and it gave me a lot of opportunities that I never would have had if I had stayed in a more traditional role. Totally agree. I worked at an early stage prop check. We've talked about this and like, you just learn so much. 
getting in yeah. early at these companies. Um, I love every part of the strategy that you took in interviewing for Torfest. That is amazing. How One, how did you originally find out about the company? And then also you were there pre-seed until what series? Series? I'd say almost series B because we were going to raise and then we had a few term sheets pulled. So like post-series A essentially. What were like some of the biggest learnings from that early in the business to series B because it changes a lot over those few yeah. years. Yeah, I definitely think um the vibe of working at the company changes once the team grows much larger cuz when it's just five or six people, you really are just friends and you're all just hanging out and everyone can like overshare in meetings and like talk about their feelings and all these things. And then as the team grows, I think we grew from six to 60 or 70 within a year and a half. And so we 10 X in size. And at that point, you, it, it, there are moments where you're like, I'm at work and this is a workplace. Um, so the things you can share, the level of closeness you have with your coworkers will feel different. Um, and I think another mistake or maybe misstep that we had is that after the Series A, we were growing so quickly. It's like the interest rates were so low a year or two ago. And so everyone wanted to buy a house. We had so much demand and not enough supply. And so we were hiring like crazy. We were going like crazy. And you just grew too quickly. And sometimes it's like you just need someone to do their job and so you fill it. But I think we could have been much more, um, we could have run much more lean and optimized for higher talent density versus maybe hiring people that were pretty good, but then later down the line could not keep up with the sustained growth. Um where it's kind of like you'd rather have a very small team of super A players than a large team of maybe like A and B players. Um, so that was that was something that a lot of people felt. I observed something very similar to <laughs> my time at Peer Street, so very much yeah. understand what you were saying there. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I jumped over this, but in college you were pursuing pre-med. So tell us about that and then how... You decided not to like apply to med school or like, did you start your applications? Yeah. So I had always thought I was going to be a doctor. Um, I was always like really into surgery and medicine and I read medical textbooks as a kid. Like if you look at my childhood bookshelf, it's like the beginning of life and it's like sperm and embryos and all these things and all my stuffed animals had like blood on them because I was pretending to do operations on them um so I think I always thought I was going to be a doctor and whether that was an idea spontaneously generated by me or implanted by my parents I don't think I'll ever know um but yeah I was very hardcore on the pre-med grind in college um you know worked in two labs did all the classes etc um, but I also, I think in college, I started wondering like, oh, maybe this is something I don't want to do. So I actually did a supply chain major as well, because um, that was a really hot major at the time. And all the people were like leaving to go into like consulting and work at like Google and stuff. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll do that. Um, and then I also majored in Chinese. And so, uh, yeah, I I took, I think I probably took an average of like 20 
two credits every semester because I needed to finish three majors in three years because I was studying abroad in China my last year. So it wasn't really going to contribute towards my degrees. Um, so that was super grueling. And I regret that because I didn't have time to um, go to a lot of events or travel or try a bunch of things that were on like the wayward path and explore stuff that I might have been interested in. Um, but yeah, I took the MCAT as well and did, you know, spent my entire summer studying for that. And that was all good. And then with studying abroad, I think it was my last year. And I started wondering, like, I don't have a hundred percent conviction for med school and I don't want to do it if I don't feel a hundred percent convinced because it is going to be a huge part of my life. So then I started um, talking to a lot of people and they're like, oh, you should just do consulting because that is what every smart person does if they don't know what they want to do. So then I started casing a lot and um, for like MBB, so it's like McKinsey and things, they have like an aptitude test, which basically I think tests how smart you are. And so you do like a bunch of short and uh, like multiple choice questions online. And I did that and I didn't hear back for a month or so. So I was like, oh, maybe... I'm not smart enough so maybe they, I just got disqualified already so I emailed the recruiter and she said oh actually you got in um your interview is next week and I was so stressed because I had classes at the time and also I had never done a single case interview or case I've study heard in my life those interviews are like crazy I've yeah heard. Yeah, like, I think you need at least like 200 plus hours of studying or something. And I oh honestly, I'd never done a single interview. Because in healthcare, you don't really need to answer interview questions about yourself. It's just like, here's my research, here's what I've done. And then they hire you or not. Uh, so I remember I like skipped a few days of class and pretty much like every single day was like 12 to 15 hours of just like straight casing. Um, and I was so, so, so stressed, but also it was, I really enjoyed casing. And I think even now, like, I think back, it's like, I was teaching my intern about the MISI structure the other day where I'm like, when you're thinking about things, they have to be mutually exclusive and completely exhaustive. And like, here's an article you can read about it. Um, but it really, I think it really helped me like have structured thinking. Um, and then the McKinsey interview happened and it was honestly kind of a disaster where like I was super cold because nowhere in the apartments in Nanjing, China had heating. And so it was like freezing. And then I had terrible internet. Um, and I just did not have enough time to prepare adequately for the calls. And I remember at the end, um, I think he gave me like a pity, like, oh, do you have any questions for me? I was like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, did you want to hear like my wrap up? He's like, no, it's okay. I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, but that experience was really helpful for me because it gave me a taste of like, okay, there are other things out in the world that I enjoy that are for me. Um, and kind of, I just figured, okay, well, I will take some time and figure out what I want to do. And if I don't, then I'll just go back to med school. It's like, it was never an issue of, oh, I don't want to work hard enough, or I don't think I'll get into med school. Like, I was never worried about that. It was more, am I going to be really miserable and depressed and really regret making this huge decision if I don't explore other options? For sure. 
one, I perform bad in normal interviews. So it's just impressive that you can even get through a McKenzie interview. So kudos to you. And two, my sister literally just started at Wake Forest Medical School. And it's like, if you don't really, really want to be there, like you're just going to have like a pretty miserable time because it's, it's yeah. a huge, like long term commitment. So yeah. I think that's, you know, good that you made the decision on before jumping into that crazy right. journey. Um, moving to your digital brand, you've done an amazing job on TikTok. Um, why and how did you originally start creating content on the platform? Yeah. Um, so I think I initially, I did a little bit of it like super early COVID just for fun. Um, and then I didn't pick it back up again. But then last year I started picking it back up again because I noticed there was a lot of um, people making content on big tech. So like working at Facebook or um, like Google and really glamorizing the whole working in tech lifestyle. And I felt like there was this misimpression that people had of people who work in tech because we work in tech and our lives are very different. Um, and working at a startup is also very, very different from maybe like the glamorous, like high pay life of an engineer um, at a fang company. And for me, startups have been a huge unlock for me in terms of like growth and learning and like even understanding myself. Um, and I felt like there was very little information out there about startups because it is not structured and it's not organized and there's no one model that you can fit all startups into. But I did want to share about that and kind of portray like my experience of working in tech outside of large companies, which is why I started. Um, and now I think it's shifted into a little bit more um, to a more wider audience where it's more around kind of like managing work relationships and how to think about your career um, and man like, yeah, and navigate kind of just being in a workplace because I don't know if the kind of people that are super interested in startups are on TikTok. I think TikTok, it's like short attention span, something easy to digest, like all the nuance. A lot of it is lost, which is why I also started a podcast to talk more about these like in-depth career switches. But I just don't know if TikTok is the right platform for all of that. And even like the type of investing content, VC content, startup content that does well in there it's all very kind of consumer friendly, quick, easy to understand. Like no one is explaining B2B SaaS business models on TikTok or like how safe investments are structured, that kind of thing. Everyone's just like, I'm an angel investor and like here are all the brands I've invested in. And a lot of them are all consumer brands, which is also very different from like what traditional venture investing does. Yes. Well, that's why we need you on TikTok and <laughs> all those things. But to your point, it is hard to make it fun. And I am trying to think a lot about that as I start learning from Nicole and then more on the investing side. So mm -hmm. hopefully we can both be part of bringing more of that education to the yeah. platform. You coined the term broke angel on TikTok. So explain what that means and share a little bit about your own angel investing journey. Yeah, of course. So the term broke angel is, I think, 
um, maybe a misnomer because obviously if you if you have enough disposable income to be angel investing, you are not broke, right? You're um, you probably have like a decent salary, but you're definitely like not outrageously wealthy by any means. Um, so it's like I'm not a millionaire, right? Uh, but I think if you are like founders will accept your investment for certain reasons, whether it's like you're a friend or you're a strategic investor. So maybe if someone wanted to leverage like my TikTok community or they wanted uh, my expertise on fundraising or prop tech, then they would accept like a small $1,000 check from me. So I think like broke angel checks are honestly like 1K to 5K. Um, Not large. It's more symbolic, but it is a show of like support. I believe in you. And also like I have buy-in now. Um, So that's what I mean by broke angel. And I joke about it because I think now there's a lot of people who through tech or through other jobs have become like Henry's, right? It's like you're high earners, but you're not rich yet, but you do have a few K to invest into companies you believe in. And also with WeFunder, which is the space I work in now, it's like you can be a broke angel for a hundred dollars, right? So you can do all of that. And I do think it is a good way to just get involved. If you want to learn about angel investing, it's the easiest way to just learn a lot for the lowest amount of money. Um, I think I forgot who it was, but someone wrote an article about investing via these platforms where you will get the most learning per dollar spent. Because if you're investing directly onto a company, like honestly, I think a thousand is the minimum you could invest. Um, But you're still writing a thousand dollars, right? Well, we fund for a thousand dollars total. And, you know, it's like their financials are on there. Their deck is on there. You won't have as much founder face time, but you will still get a lot of the other details that matter. And I think when you're starting out, then it's really good. Um, so I like being a broke angel. Like you can stay involved. You can work with founders. It's fun. Um, and you get to see the companies that you really believe in grow. Um, and that's that's a great experience too. So obviously startups are very risky, like 90% fail. And obviously that gets de-risked as you go on by stage. But how do you think about de-risking your angel investments? Yeah, I think the key is you just have to, I mean, it's hard to predict. I don't really think too much on, oh, is this going to be a unicorn investment for me? Um, Because I mean, it's like, investors way smarter and way more experienced than me have made investments that have failed as well. And so for me, I more think like, is this a product that I think makes sense in the world? Um, Is it something that I believe in? And also, do I think the founders are good? And I I think to me, that is the biggest question. It's like, do I think the founders are good? Um, And sometimes even if it's like, oh, I don't know if I really get the whole business plan or it's like I'm not like fully convinced but I know that the team is super smart and like hustles really hard and just like get stuff done I will sometimes still invest maybe just a smaller amount because it's like maybe they know something I don't but what I do know is that I really believe in these people and then you just I think you have to make multiple investments like you can't count on just one to make it but you just have to invest like you know 10 plus diversify right and then it's kind of out of your hands. Um, so you're doing so much. We haven't even touched on Potluck Ventures. So tell us about your role there and a little bit about the fund. 
Yeah, so Potluck Ventures is a solo GP fund started by Eric Lim, who worked at Fifth Wall and a few other venture firms, um, also has a background in private equity. And he's focused on like AAPI founded a growth stage company. So these are companies that are usually series B and beyond. And he has a focus on like B2B SaaS, prop tech. Um, so some industries that I'm familiar with, but also my focus was so much on like pre-seed to series A, like pretty early stage companies that I wanted to work on and get a better understanding of growth stage companies. Because at that point, you have real financials, you have a business model, your projections are more reliable. And so it's a lot more kind of like metrics based versus like vibes, founder, product market fit based. Um, so that's what I joined Potluck Ventures to learn more on. And so we worked on a few deals together. I think namely it's like Clever, Cle Clever Care, um, which is uh, like Medicare Advantage for AAPI community. And they did really well. Um, and so we did a few deals together, diligence. And it was so interesting seeing the questions that Eric asked because they're so different from the questions that you would ask for an early stage company. Um, so that was really great. What are some of the those different questions? I think he will like he'll think about things in in terms of like revenue, right? And so a lot of the companies we were talking to were B two B companies, and just like a lot of insights where he's saying that like B two B companies, their revenue is going to be it can be it can look lumpy because. Every client that you bring on is a huge chunk of revenue, but it also takes a really long time to close these clients. And so um, sometimes you'll have a huge spike and then other times it'll look lower. And so a key determinant of, you know, whether this company is going to succeed or not is can you land clients, right? Is your product attractive to these people who are willing to pay for it? Um, and while that might seem obvious, it was just something that was, something that I just never really thought about. I feel like, and I have not gotten any insight into the growth stage investing. It seems quite different to your point from very early stage. And I feel like I hear a lot that in growth stage, you need more of like an investment banking or a PE background, or at least that seems like in the hiring process from what I gauge, mm -hmm. that's what a lot of yeah. the bigger funds are looking for. Have you, do you think that is true? Like, does Eric have a background in, in that space at all? Or what have you found? Yeah. So Eric's background is private equity. Um, so very heavy finance background. And I do think it's true where it's like a lot of the deals we assess, it's just like looking at all the numbers, you know, it's like, how are they de-risking? How are they diversifying? How are they expanding? Um, and he would look at, you know, like, are, do their projections even make sense? Like, are these realistic with the assumptions that they're making? Um, so that was very cool to see and experience. Uh, that transitions us perfectly into a new thing that I'm doing this season, which is asking all investors to debunk a startup or VC term of your choice for our listeners. Hmm. Okay. Has safe been done yet? It has not. It's all yours. Okay. Okay. So I'll talk about safes. All right. So back to the angel investing topic. Um, the traditional way is when your startup is raising money, you're doing a price round, which means that um, 
there is a value assigned to your company. So let's say your company is you're raising money and you're like, we are raising at $60 million and this is what my company is worth, right? Now, what if you need to raise money in between these price rounds? Because price rounds are time consuming, they're expensive, you rack up a lot in lawyer fees, but, and they're usually larger. And so sometimes you need money before you can justify doing another huge, large round. So maybe you only want to raise like 200K in between, like a bridge round, right? So it doesn't make sense for you to do another price round. So most people will raise on something called a safe which stands for Simple Agreement for Future Equity. And what this means is you invest money on a safe. And what it is, is you're like, I'm giving you money. And next time you do a price round, I will get equity. So you don't actually get equity immediately. Um, and also it is a way of kind of kicking of, of like the company not needing to determine their valuation just yet. And so there are a few things where there will be a valuation cap, which is uh, kind of protects the investor because the higher your company is valued, the less shares you get, right? And so sometimes the safe will have a cap saying like the max value that our company can have is let's say like $80 million. And if their actual price round is a hundred mil, you will still get your shares as if the company was valued at $80 million. So it kind of protects you because, and it rewards you for being an earlier investor. And I recently learned that VCs hate uncapped safes. So oh, yeah. putting that out there in the uh, ecosystem so everyone can take that away from this podcast. And then moving on to my favorite question, can you share a female founder, investor, or leader who inspires you and a little bit about why? Yes. Um, female founder. Okay. I've mentioned this a few times to you, but I'm just going to plug it again, where a company and a female founder that I've really enjoyed working with lately is called Throne Labs. So they are building smart public bathrooms for the US and maybe eventually like elsewhere too. But um, their co-founder is called Jess Heinzelman and she was former Meta, worked across a bunch of things, but um, really hardworking, creative, smart, and kind of just has like a super go-getter attitude about everything and also just like very positive. Um, and I think with founders, sometimes it's very easy to have like a very like nihilistic kind of negative or like short attitude because the world is bringing you down. It is very hard being a founder. And I think working with her always just like gives me a lot of energy and she is great. And I think what they're building is really awesome. They actually launch in LA um, next week in October um, where, so you might see them popping around in the city. Uh, they can be wrapped in like local artists artwork and the inside of the, it looks like like a fancy porta potty, but the inside looks just like a luxury bathroom. It's like porcelain toilet, automatic sink, the works. Uh, I'm excited to try them myself, but I just think like better public infrastructure is so needed for the US. And it's really hard because you have all sorts of logistics and working with hardware is challenging um, and it's capital intensive. So it's a hard problem that not a people want to tackle, but they're doing it because it's needed and it's necessary and like the hard 
problems are usually the ones that are worth it to solve. We need this in literally every city. And she chose LA, right? Because the Olympics are going to be yeah, here Yeah, so, so they're launched in DC. And mm. they will also be launching in New York City very soon with the Department of Transportation. And then they're working with LA and the city. Um, and yeah, LA is working on its public infrastructure because the Olympics are happening in a few years. Yes. Well, I'm thankful for that and for everything yes. that she's doing to put that in place for us. And then finally, um, where can people connect with you? Yeah, so you can find me on TikTok, Magizine, M-A-G-G-I-Z-I-N-E, and that's my handle for pretty much everywhere except Twitter, where I have an underscore after it. Unfortunately, someone took it, but you can find me there. It happens. Well, thank <laughs> you so much for joining the show. Um, this was a long time coming, so so excited to finally have the conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Playbridge podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, make sure to like, review, and subscribe. Tune in every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts, for candid conversations with the most inspiring female founders and investors in tech.